0: From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. It seems like every day, the tensions and the rhetoric over trade around the world continue to heat up. From U.S.-China trade negotiations taking a sharp and unexpected turn for the worse over the last month.
1: These China trade worries are deepening as we get more on how China reportedly backtrack on talks. And now the president tweets a few
0: moments ago. To the trade battles opening up on new fronts with President Trump's recent surprise threat to impose tariffs on Mexican goods if the migration crisis at the border continues.
2: Those tariffs are increasingly a weapon of choice. One already being used against China and the European Union. And now it seems against Mexico as well.
1: Mexico shouldn't allow millions of people to try and enter our country, and they could stop it
0: very quickly. And I think they will. And if they won't, we're going to put tariffs on. Trade wars and the continuing impact they have on the global economy and markets are top of mind. Trade has clearly been a major part of President Trump's agenda, in line with his long-held view, and I mean going back decades, that America has gotten a raw deal on trade. He first targeted Japan on these issues back in the 1980s, and now his crosshairs have clearly shifted to China. Here he is giving the State of the Union address earlier this year.
1: One priority is paramount, reversing decades of calamitous trade policies so bad. We are now making it clear to China that after years of targeting our industries and stealing our intellectual property, The theft of American jobs and wealth has come
0: to an end. But while it's easy to pin the blame for the deteriorating relationship on Trump, not to mention China's President Xi Jinping, who's also taken a much more aggressive approach to foreign policy. The reality is that the cracks started appearing well before both leaders entered the picture. But that's not to say both haven't done more than their fair share to exacerbate the problems. I spoke with Susan Shirk, chair of the 21st Century China program at UC San Diego, to understand how we got here. So the first question is, how has the relationship between the U.S. and China evolved over the past couple of decades to arrive at the current tensions today?
3: Well, the United States and China used to get along pretty well, considering that they have very different political systems and that China is a rising power and the U.S. is the dominant power. So that was all going pretty well until the global financial crisis. And that exogenous shock, you might say, really, I think, led to... A loss of respect for America's market democracy because the failures of our own system of financial regulation had caused the crisis. So loss of prestige for America inside China. And this is the second term of Hu Jintao's administration, this is not Xi Jinping. And so I think it's important to remember that all the problems in the relationship did not start in 2012 with Xi Jinping's ascendance to the
0: throne. While the problems may have predated Xi Jinping and, of course, President Trump, now it feels like is the moment when there really is a very strong U.S. and broader global backlash against China on trade and on broader issues. Yeah. So is that right. all about Trump or is it about Xi? What brought about yeah. the current hostility?
3: China brought a lot of it on itself starting in the mid-2000s and then doubling down on its overreaching with the start of the Xi Jinping administration. China has really taken a U-turn back to the bad old days of the Mao era. In the beginning, Xi Jinping laid out some very positive economic reforms in the third plenum of the 18th party committee back in 2013, and everybody thought, oh, Xi Jinping is gonna be a real economic reformer, but then nothing happened. None of it was implemented, really. And in fact, the state has just strengthened its role over the economy. So the market reforms have stalled out. And we've gone back to not quite to central planning, but to a form of state capitalism, which puts Chinese private firms as well as international ones at a great disadvantage. And then China's own leadership and Chinese government's own foreign policy actions, particularly in regard to its maritime sovereignty claims in the South China Sea, where since the mid-2000s, it's been defending those claims much more aggressively in violation of the legitimate international law rights Of other climates, other coastal states. And I really do think that China's actions in the South China Sea have been important, not just because of the South China Sea, but they changed the perspective, the narrative about China's intentions. The Belt and Road, Xi Jinping's foreign policy is also much, much more ambitious. China is now a major presence on every continent, and that also raised alarm bells. People saw Xi Jinping's global ambitions as kind of scary and something very, very new. And then politically, China has become a much more ideological political system. Under Xi, the Communist Party has taken back the authority it delegated to government technocrats and is trying to run everything itself. And within the party, Xi Jinping is trying to run everything himself in a much more concentrated system of personalistic dictatorship. And of course, the biggest blow to hopes that China was very slowly evolving toward a better governed form of authoritarian government was the fact that Xi Jinping got the Communist Party to abandon the practices of peaceful turnover of power at the top that China had achieved, really the first communist country to have achieved that. It was quite an accomplishment. So this all made China look more threatening, more dangerous, and much harder to deal with. And that's only on the Chinese side. We haven't even gotten to Trump yet.
0: So getting to Trump, I reached out to Dr. Wang Huiyao, who's the president of the Center for China and Globalization in Beijing and a leading voice in global debates about China's role in the world. He tells me that what started off as a promising relationship between Presidents Trump and Xi has now devolved, in his view, into a case of bullying and unfair demands on the part of the US. How is President Trump viewed by policymakers in Beijing today?
4: I think he's kind of losing credibility now. I mean, he started his presidency, and he's acted as if he's portrayed. So he actually came to China, visited China. I think at that time during his visit, he did very well of that visit. And he had also started a very good relation with President Xi. Now, I think he's using too much his out-of-the-deal style to handle this state-to-state relationship. I think it's good, you know, probably sometimes effective in the company, to company relations, business relations. But it's really difficult to using that kind of style dealing with 1.4 billion people, the largest, most populous country in the world. He I mean, is probably viewed as a bully right now, more and more
0: so. So when it comes to the trade war between the U.S. and China, what are the sticking points? While the deal that had been negotiated so far appeared to make significant progress on key issues like intellectual property protection and forced technology transfers, according to Professor Wang, a non-negotiable for China is removal of all existing tariffs once the deal is reached. But so far, the U.S. side has insisted that lifting tariffs must be earned through future compliance with the deal.
4: The other thing the U.S. was asking, so they're going to keep the tariffs on even though trade deal is going to be signed? You know what I mean? The tariff is the cause of this trade war. So now, if we have a trade deal, why should we still keep the tariff hanging there? So it's really unequal treaties, basically. It reminds the Chinese of old histories. It's really unequal treaties. So you see, that's not fair because if we had a deal, let's then get rid of the cause of where we started these trade negotiations because of the. Uh, so if they still hanging 10%, 20% of the tariff, how could you expect China to sign a deal like that? So I think there's quite some unreasonable
0: request. Of course, I also wanted to get some perspective on how the Trump administration is viewing all this, and I had the chance to speak with Michael Pillsbury. He's the director for Chinese strategy at the Hudson Institute and is closely aligned with Trump on all things China. In his eyes, Trump's demands aren't unreasonable. They're consistent with a path towards de-escalation and zero tariffs in just a matter of years. We look at Trump's approach to tariffs. It seems as though one of the sticking points is that We are asking for a series of concessions, which they seem somewhat willing to make in the 90%. But we have said that we won't necessarily lift the existing tariffs if these are met. And, you know, we'll feel free to impose more tariffs on our discretion based on our view of compliance and so forth. What do we make of that?
1: In general, tariffs are bad. They produce gross inefficiency and they slow the global growth rate. That said, tariffs have had two roles in the past. One is not part of the current negotiations, and I oppose this idea. That is what are called Alexander Hamilton tariffs, or to protect a young industry's opportunity to grow, you slap huge tariffs on foreign products to protect the infant industries until they are competitive on a global basis. But that is not the kind of tariffs that the Trump administration is talking about. It's talking about, under so-called Section 301 of the Trade Act, it's talking about tariffs that are being used in a punitive way. That's the key word, punitive. Or you might say as a means to get the other country to come to the bargaining table and to bargain seriously. Those kind of tariffs are short-term. They are not for 100 years. But I argue that rather than lift them immediately for a particular negotiating concession, Why not leave enough tariffs on that China has an incentive? If you comply with this trade agreement provision here, which in the past you violated, if you do it now for one year or two years successfully, we trust you more, we will reduce or cancel out completely a certain tariff as a reward and an incentive. That's a very different kind than the Alexander Hamilton approach and ultimately it's consistent with the idea of going to zero tariffs between the U.S. and China, or as close to zero as possible within the next few years. That, I interpret, is what President Trump's objective is. He talks about being tariff man, but he seems to mean that only in the short-term sense of getting negotiating leverage, not in terms of 100 years.
0: So, with hard lines still drawn on both sides, a U.S. presidential election looming, and newly targeted trading partners looking to the U.S.-China negotiations as the litmus test for how their own conflicts will shake out, the big question is if and when we'll see a deal. Alec Phillips, our chief U.S. political economist, thinks the best case scenario for U.S.-China negotiations, basically reaching an agreement that ultimately de-escalates tensions, is actually the least likely scenario right now. He believes no or at least not enough progress will be made at the highly anticipated G20 summit in Japan later this month, and expects the U.S. to impose tariffs on the remaining set of U.S. imports from China soon after the summit concludes. But Alec thinks politics in Washington could play a major role in getting to a deal before the 2020 presidential election, given all of the political incentives it would provide to President Trump's re-election bid. On the other hand, Pillsbury says the U.S. is underestimating the influence of the Chinese hardliners who think America is trying to halt China's rise. And in his view, even if we manage to overcome those influencers and make more progress towards a deal, the political implications for Trump could swing the other way.
1: The American side seems to have assumed that the reformers were totally in charge and there was no need to worry about what to do about the hawks in their point of view. That seems to have been a strategic mistake we've made over the last 20 or 30 years. The politics on our side is also quite important. Obviously, if the damage is really bad to the stock market, to our farmers, to our trading companies, if the Chinese start to punish us in retaliation, then that causes negative press. His campaign manager would have to hope this wouldn't affect the base, it wouldn't affect Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, the key electoral college states that President Trump keeps talking about, how proud he is of winning them. So, on the opposite side, President Trump has his own base that he promised to get tough with China. He's got the Democrats, if anything, implying he's weak, and they could use this against him in 2020. Chuck Schumer has taunted on March 2nd in the tweet. He said President Trump should not be lifting the tariffs. He should go ahead and put them all on. Otherwise, he'd be betraying the American worker. Bernie Sanders is even criticizing for not being tough enough, for not declaring China a currency manipulator, for which President Trump had many good reasons not to do that on day one, but now Bernie Sanders says he's going to do it on day one.
0: So what does this all mean for the economy and markets? Our economists are expecting only limited additional escalation, which should keep global growth implications manageable. Good news for China's recent and closely watched recovery. But the growth effects could, of course, rise sharply if things escalate even further with China and now Mexico, too. But the biggest ramification may be yet to come and much harder to quantify. According to Susan Shirk, that's a threat to intellectual capital and an open society more broadly as a result of deteriorating international relationships. Here's Shirk again.
3: I see a big hurting instinct in the face of a perceived security threat from China among Democrats and Republicans alike. And that's kind of taking us, we're hurting ourselves off a cliff because I believe that decoupling technologically, because we believe that China represents a serious security threat, will actually weaken our own technological innovativeness, our own ecosystem. If we restrict all Chinese tech investment in the United States, the loss will be so much Chinese capital. I mean, there's plenty of venture capital in America. We don't need Chinese capital. But I believe that it will lead to a loss of Chinese talent. And the talent dimension of innovation is critically important. And the other related danger is that we will put Chinese Americans, as well as people from China, Chinese citizens, under a cloud of suspicion because of concerns that Chinese technological espionage is so prevalent on campuses and in companies that we just have to investigate all people of Chinese descent. And that could turn into and is already beginning to turn into an anti-Chinese version of a red scare, similar to the McCarthy era. So I do worry that the way we're reacting to the threat we perceive from China is a kind of race to the bottom of a more closed, more restrictive economy technological ecosystem and society, instead of becoming a better version of our
0: open market democracy. It's a warning echoed by Dr. Wang Huiyao.
4: So it looks like that not just satisfied with the trade war, but also leading to a technology war, <laughs> and then maybe, you know, financial and then, you know, also visa issues and everything. So it's going to solve every aspect of the Sino-U.S. relations. You know, China could be a rivalry, but not a strategic rivalry, but maybe a cooperative rivalry, a healthy you know, competitor, but not as an enemy in that sense. So I think that we really have to think, oh, You is the U.S. ready to make China an enemy of the
0: U.S.? With that question in mind, and no clear end in sight for this fast-moving and quickly-changing situation, the only thing that seems certain is that trade wars will remain top of mind.
2: This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, Indirect or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute Such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.